Welcome back again to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Riccobeni Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. And I've also been a board member and a past president for CLEAR. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is an opportunity for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Now, given the current emphasis on reducing barriers to licensure, one area regulators are turning attention to is the licensure examination. In some professions and occupations, regulators are considering alternatives to the exam, such as maybe an apprenticeship or supervised training programs and experiential learning programs. Now, recently, the Oregon Supreme Court voted to approve a new pathway to attorney licensure, a supervised practice portfolio examination as an alternative to the traditional bar exam. So joining with us today, we have um, Addie uh, Smith and Joe uh, Perini Abbott um, from the Oregon State Bar. They are both board members who led the alternatives to the exam task force. So we're super glad to have you speaking with us today. Thanks. Thanks. Excellent. So I understand that some of the conversations um, about alternatives to the traditional bar exam actually began in like 2020 during the start of the pandemic, right? There were a lot of things that were going on like that. Obviously, in-person examinations were were impacted, so the Oregon Supreme Court granted a temporary, um, I think it was called a diploma privilege option. So maybe starting with Joe, could you maybe talk more about what that meant? Sure. So just like you said, it was COVID. We didn't want to put 500 people in a room together. So the Supreme Court um, actually ordered us to do three things. They did order us to have a smaller in-person exam, create an online exam, and grant diploma privilege to a subset of people. So it was only people who were signed up to take the exam already and who either graduated from an Oregon law school or a law school that traditionally has an 80% bar passage rate. So although it was diploma privilege, where if you graduated from law school, and past character and fitness, you were admitted without a further examination. We were still using bar exam results as a proxy for making that um, admission decision. Gotcha. So basically, you know, they're they're showing this history of of producing candidates that are well versed in the law to be able to pass the bar. Exactly. Right. So, um, Joe, continuing with you on that. So, how did that lead to maybe further conversations about alternatives to the exam and, and how does that fit in with the kind of the changing needs that we have for the legal profession as we speak? Yeah. So when we first, when the board of our examiners first saw the petitions for diploma privilege, the board of our examiners actually pushed back and said, we'd be happy to take a look at what, at alternatives to the bar exam, but it needs to be a more thoughtful sort of deliberative process to get there. Um, ultimately, the Supreme Court granted diploma privilege in that moment, but then came back to us and said, well, you said you could do a thoughtful, deliberative process. Let's see you do it. So so started um, the alternatives to the bar exam task force in September of 2020. So you guys spent probably, what, at least a year researching alternatives to the exam. Um, and and then from, from my research, at least it looks like you came up with two proposals, um, the experimental um, or experiential yeah. pathway um, 
and which I like experimental though. Um, uh, maybe that way I could get my, 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 my past the bar yeah. in, in your state. So maybe that like would be it. the new experimental one, but also, so an experiential one, as well as a supervised pathway or practice pathway. So now that I've kind of muddied those waters completely, could you maybe walk through uh, maybe starting with the experiential and, and tell us more about them? Yeah. So just even taking a step further back, we actually examined three pathways. We examined a true diploma privilege like they have in Wisconsin. We examined an experiential law school pathway, similar to what um, the University of New Hampshire is doing. And we examined supervised practice, similar to the Canadian articling system or what a couple of states did in COVID. Essentially, what happened with the experiential law school pathway and diploma privilege is they sort of collapsed on each other. Um, in that they, the people who looked at diploma privilege said, well, couldn't the bar examiners still examine a portfolio or something of work product? And we said, well, that's exactly what New Hampshire is doing. So we rejected sort of the true form diploma privilege. The experiential pathway is um, a law school focused pathway that pushes a more experiential curriculum in law school where students are creating a portfolio of work that would be assessed by the board of bar examiners. So there's still that examination. It's just of authentic legal work product that's developed in law school rather than a two-day exam. It's similar to the supervised practice pathway, except that happens after graduation where people are working in the legal field, but also creating a similar portfolio of, of documents that's assessed by the board of our examiners. Gotcha. So let me, let me, kind of move this to Addie then. And because it almost sounds like, and again, I could be really wrong, but the supervised practice pathway almost sounds like an apprenticeship um, uh, of some sort. So um, maybe describe that if you would for me. Yeah, happy to. So so the only thing I would say is to the extent that it's an apprenticeship, some of the apprenticeship models out there, like California, for example, you don't have to go to law school in Oregon to participate in what we're calling the SPPE, which is that post law school pathway, you do have to have graduated from an ABA accredited law school still. So you have to have that foundation of law school. And in fact, the uh, program as passed requires you to take specific courses. We often sort of in the legal world call them your 1L curriculum, which is your first year of law school curriculum, which are those foundational courses. After you've completed that, then you can participate in this program. Um, and it requires 675 hours of supervised legal work under the supervision of a licensed attorney um, who has been practicing for some time. Then in addition to sort of practicing, you have to submit eight pieces of legal written work. And then you have to conduct two negotiations as well as two client interviews or counseling sessions with the supervising attorneys present and able to assess the quality of those negotiations or counseling sessions. In addition, it has a host of sort of other requirements, including legal ethics requirements, access to justice requirements, diversity, equity, and inclusion requirements, and sort of the requirement that you participate in, a, in another foundational CLE program, which in the legal world, those are our continuing education units, while you're participating in the program. So you have to put all of those together into a portfolio, and that sort of forms the basis of the actual examination, right? We are going to review and grade for competence those pieces of written work, the negotiations, the client interviews, and then we are going to assess that you have completed all of the other requirements um, to determine that you're sort of ready to practice. So that's sort of what the foundation looks like. 
in terms of the requirements of the program and then the examination associated with it. That's uh, really interesting. And, and those are, I mean, both pathways seem quite different from, you know, your traditional bar exam route. Um, Addie, I think like, how would you, I guess, how would these pathways maybe aim to, to bridge that, maybe that gap in skills necessary for, for legal practice? I mean, like, it sounds like obviously looking at some of it, but like, how, how do we, how do we really fix that? <laughs> I think it's a great question. The first thing I would say is sort of the obvious. We're testing your ability to be a competent attorney by letting you show us you're practicing as a competent attorney. It's so obvious. It's almost hard to even say, right? The foundation is we want to see that you're competent to practice while supervised, and then we'll deem you competent to practice without supervision. The other thing I would say is in terms of the bar exam specifically, you may or may not be aware that it has changed numerous times throughout the years, and it's currently undergoing yet again another, I don't want to say overhaul, but significant change to what's going to be called the next-gen bar exam. The next-gen bar exam, interestingly enough, uh, really dovetails with this program nicely because what it's beginning to focus on is a lot less, did you memorize the right things to come in, and more, are you able to show us you have the skills to be a lawyer? Um, so the exam is going to be much more skill focused, much like the SPPE or our program is very skill focused. Can you show us that one, you have that foundational knowledge of the law because you took those courses in law school, but two, that you actually have the legal writing skills, you have the legal analysis skills, you have the ability to work with clients, and you have the ability to negotiate with co-counsel, or not co-counsel, but opposing <laughs> counsel on issues, or sometimes honestly- Sometimes co-counsel. Co <laughs> right? <laughs> on the issues that matter. So it's a real practical practice-based because in the world of the legal profession, unlike, for example, the medical profession, you're not licensed to practice in the area of trusts and estates. You're not licensed to practice in criminal law. Everyone receives a general licensure. And so it's very hard to think about the best way to test specific basic knowledge when for many of us, we have really narrow niches or areas of expertise. For example, I know Indian child welfare inside and out. If you want to hand me a will and ask me to review it for you, I'm going to tell you you need to talk to anyone but me. That's not something I have expertise in. So by really following the pattern of the next-gen bar exam and understanding that being a lawyer is really about the skills, not always the content, because the content will come once you have the skills, once you know what you're researching, you'll go find that, you'll go learn that to do it. That's really how we've kind of crafted this program to bridge those gaps. Oh, that That's really great. So <clears throat> I'll, I'll pose this to Joe then. So, you know, obviously the bar exam has been around for a, a, a very long time. Um, it's obviously very considered a very rigorous and almost like a rite of passage, similar to like, you know, uh, medical doctors going through residency, right. It has this almost challenge that you have to, to meet just to be able to prove yourself. Did you any, did you receive any pushback when these alternatives might, I guess, I think lower the bar, if you would, um, for, for those attempting to become an attorney? <laughs> so we received, um, I would say that a lot of people's initial reaction is an assumption that this was lowering the bar and we got pushed back. 
I spoke to hun literally hundreds of lawyers in Oregon. I appeared at every bar association that would let me present to them. And with very few exceptions, once lawyers understood that the board of bar examiners was still actually assessing competence, that there was still some sort of thing that people had to present to show that they were competent practicing lawyers, that it wasn't really just diploma privilege. And once we talked about the changes in the bar exam that have happened over the last 40 years, you know, saying to a lawyer, the bar exam you took 40 years ago is not the bar exam I took, and it's really not the bar exam someone's about to take that reduces the number of subjects and things like that. They go, oh, okay. So this thing that we've always called the bar exam is kind of, it's, it's not fake. There's been a bar exam, but it's not this unified thing that everyone has had to pass. And so with very few exceptions at the end of those conversations, at the end of those presentations, people realize that this is actually probably a more rigorous process than taking the bar exam. Quite honestly, if you're good at exam taking, you should just sit and take the two-day exam. It's going to take less time. It's going to be less onerous on your starting out as in practice. Um, but we really had to pause and help people understand the rigor that this program is, that it's not just a free pass. If you graduated law school, you're admitted to practice law. Right. But it, but it does feel like the, I don't know if this is the right word, the hazing experience that you would yeah. have to go through is, is missing. I mean, like even like I was in the Navy and, and, you know, while we got trained all of our skills, there was still that, that last test that we went through that, you know, we, we stayed awake for 48 hours and had to go in the gas chamber and do all those kind of things. Um, and that was just kind of that, you know, once you're through with that, you kind of got your little stamp of approval, yeah. but, you know, and, and as you know, then I got to help participate in those for next classes graduating. Yeah. And it was part of like, you know, you got to pass this to get through. Um, it's taken that, um, I don't want to say good old boy because that's not the right term, but that that hazing experience away that that, you know, we worked so hard to get the first time. Yeah, there have certainly been comments, particularly in our public comment that said I took the bar exam. They should have to, too. And then you just have to have the conversation. What do you mean you took the bar exam? Well, did you have to do an MPT? Did it look like this? Was it a full day of multiple choice? Oh, your bar exam was different. OK, so now. Yes, the 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 intensity, the the fear of I only I, if I don't study enough to pass this two day exam, that has been consistent throughout history. But otherwise, most people change their mind when you really start to show them the details. I'm tempted to to either one point out how uh, we've sort of learned that hazing as a practice is no longer <laughs> the best way to go, or simultaneously make a joke that you've clearly never been supervised by a partner at a law firm because that's a hazing experience <laughs> in of itself. <laughs> but I'm not sure that either of those are the technical answers you guys are looking for. And I I hear your point for sure. <laughs> Maybe we can touch on that when I get into DEI, DEI yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah, <laughs> excellent. Well, um, Addie, so um, so after uh, reviewing the report, the Oregon Supreme Court basically voted to approve this supervised practice portfolio examination pathway. Um, what impacts do you foresee this having on law students in Oregon right now, as well as uh, on the law schools themselves? 
Yeah, so I'm currently the chair of the board of bar examiners. And so I have a monthly meeting with our law schools and students are very interested in this pathway. I think um, I have also received numerous phone calls from students outside the state of Oregon or emails making sure that this program is still something they're eligible for, which as long as your school is an ABA accredited law school, absolutely. This is not limited only to Oregon law school students. So I think students are really, as Joe sort of mentioned, weighing what pathway is the best way for them to show the skills that they have gained through law school and their competence as an attorney. I will say the one question that remains open that our law schools and our students are grappling with is comedy or reciprocity, right? We're at the forefront of what's happening in this area in Oregon. We are moving forward with the SPPE, you can know with certainty that if you're able to pass our exam, you're gonna be licensed to practice in Oregon. The question of whether other states will accept that licensure once you've put your time in as an attorney is still an open one. I will say that we know that our sister, brother, sibling states are starting to look at this. Washington, Utah, California, all have um, work groups happening, things being drafted, conversations they're engaged in around alternatives to the bar, some of which look very, very similar where they've sort of taken our blueprint, some of which look a little bit different. So there's a strong hope. But in terms of how it's affecting law students right now, I think in Oregon in particular, our students are very aware that come May 15th, they could choose this instead of taking the bar exam. And I think for a lot of students, it's a it's a relief because for whatever reason, they're not best able to show their skills um, via examination. Right. That, that makes sense. From, uh, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the regulatory arena is definitely something that, you know, CLEAR specifically, as well as its member regulatory organizations have been quite focused on in the last few years. Um, how do you think this new pathway will support diversity and equity in the legal profession? Yeah, great. I mean, I think the obvious that we all know is that for a host of reasons, um, students of diverse backgrounds don't always excel at standardized tests, right? The research has been clear for a couple decades now on that. And so to the extent that we're stepping away from a standardized test, I think that in and of itself um, creates an opportunity for more students of diverse backgrounds to uh, to come through and, and be licensed to practice in Oregon. I think the other piece that's baked into this is the mentorship piece of having a supervisor. I think we know that often individuals of different backgrounds are um, left out of the, don't have a seat at the table, are left out of the conversation. Here, it's our hope that students will be able to uh, work with and find a wide array of supervisors who will not only mentor them in the actual practice of the law and competency to practice law, but will also offer that support needed for individuals whose maybe didn't have a dad who was an attorney or who may be the first to graduate college in their family or who have, uh, you know, are now facing the experience of being the only person of color in the room, et cetera. And so um, those two pieces, eliminating sort of a standardized test and offering the opportunity to really build in a support system for individuals who may or may not have the same type of experience as their sort of um, cishet white counterparts, really, it's our hope that that will promote um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and not just in name and not just by opening the door, but by holding that door open, by pulling that chair up to the table for those individuals. 
That's great. I like that. Uh, not just opening the door, but holding the door open. That's uh, I will use that. Um, fantastic. And and thank you for that. So I know for, for us from clear, um, we did in one of the news articles we shared in our clear news reporting on this change and use the headline. This was the headline we used. Um, let me make sure I get it right. Um, a history-making vote changes attorney licensure in Oregon. <clears throat> so, Joe, do you think this change is history-making and why? I would love to call it history-changing. I would love for Oregon to get that credit. Um, we are the sort of the tip of a wave of making this explicit change, but I don't think it's history making. I think the bar exam and as all regulatory exams are, have been evolving processes. And we, um, this is just sort of the next evolution of what is always a changing system. Every regulatory exam should be constantly self-assessing to determine if there is a better, more authentic way to do decrease both false positives and false negatives, right? To really determine is someone competent or have we erected artificial barriers or are we letting people in who shouldn't be? And, and so I think Oregon did a lot of work from standing on the shoulders of other people who had done a lot of work. A lot of academics had been pushing for this for a long time. And Oregon finally sort of took that research, said, yes, we can do this. We can make these changes. But like Addie said, a lot of other states are very close behind. And I just think it's a natural evolution in something that's always been evolving. Great. But well, you can keep uh, calling us history making. That's great. I, I, I like it. <laughs> well, last question. And this one you don't have to answer right now. But what do I need to do to get an honorary law license in Oregon? <laughs> so you can you can get back to me directly later. Perfect. don't have to answer that Perfect. now. Um, but I will say it's been great talking to you, and it's it's certainly uh, very interesting and exciting to hear how Oregon has has navigated uh, through this process of considering alternatives um, to traditional licensure exams. Um, so thank you, Addie and Joe, um, for speaking with me today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. We're excited. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure, and and we'd like to continue this conversation with our members. So here are some questions for our listeners to think about and maybe use on our 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 regulatory network. Um, what benefits and drawbacks do you see to allowing alternative pathways to licensure, whatever path that is and whatever license that you're offering? And what do you foresee as future trends in this area? We greatly appreciate and thank our members for your feedback. And these questions will be posted in our Clear Regulatory Network for member discussion. And if you haven't already joined the Clear Regulatory Network, we invite and encourage you to join and take a part in the online discussions. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in for this episode. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. And if you're new to the Clear Podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free also to visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of upcoming programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. She is our content coordinator and editor for this program. Once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.